I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Jacob Stokes, who is a senior fellow focused on China in the Indo-Pacific Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Jacob, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Grant. It's great to be here with you both. So how did you get interested in foreign policy and specifically what attracted you to China? I got interested in foreign policy as someone who was in high school in the 9-11 era and the beginning of the Iraq War. And, you know, as a kid growing up in the Midwest, that was kind of my entree into thinking about the world and, and what kind of larger forces were at play that, that shaped the world we live in. When I moved to Washington, I started to read around in the U.S. foreign policy literature and sort of zeitgeist and saw that everyone was really talking about China as the next big thing about rising powers. And I kind of looked around Washington and saw that the majority of kind of expertise and focus in the policy community was on Iraq and Afghanistan and counterterrorism. And, you know, there's a certain case for that at the time where it made sense. But I thought about as I was kind of building a career in the the foreign policy world that I should kind of skate to the puck uh, it, rather than or where it's going rather than where it's been. But also just as someone who was oriented a little bit to the realist tradition in IR, really just looking at the fundamentals of power, right? That this is a, a, a big country, a large population, a quickly growing economy. And so that's really how I started to get interested in in China. And then towards the end of college, you had the 2008 Olympics. Uh, that was really, in some ways, China's coming out party. So I think after that, I was, I was really very focused on, on, on China. And as I worked my way through the, the U.S. foreign policy world, in many ways, the rest of the foreign policy community kind of caught up to, to where I was going and, and thinking about China issues. Not that I was the only one, but, but in many ways, we've seen the larger discussion refocus on China in the last five, six years in a way that had been the case for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan prior to that. And, you know, I, I had the good fortune to uh, work at CNAS earlier in my career for three and a half years. And then I worked in the White House for then Vice President Joe Biden on his national security staff, including for a stint as, as his Asia advisor. And then before this job, I, I worked for the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission, which advises uh, the U.S. Congress on China foreign and security policy issues. And I also worked at the U.S. Institute of Peace and their China program. So really, you know, trying to build out a depth of expertise because as more people are covering the issue and China becomes more important in the world generally, having a detailed understanding of the Chinese system, the foreign policy concepts that, that China is putting forward and the kind of logic that underlies them, I think is increasingly important. So, so that's sort of how I arrived here today. You've been focused on China for a really long time, and I'm curious how the tenor has shifted over the course of the time that you've that that you've been looking at China and and I you know I ask because you know I think we are of a we're of a similar generation or similar age and I feel like I remember a moment you know in high school and college in which the sort of optimism with regards to China was at kind of an all-time high and everybody was studying Mandarin and so forth and the tone has shifted or it seems like it has 
So what has that been like as somebody who is, you know, in the thick of that, thick of that topic and field? Well, I think a lot of it can be boiled down to the end of, of a multi-decade period in U.S.-China relations that's, that's broadly described as engagement. When Richard Nixon went to China in the 1970s, this was a big move during the Cold War to kind of bring China at least tacitly onto the U.S. side against the Soviet Union. And then after uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the idea that an emerging China could be a partner on global issues, as especially, especially as China became uh, richer and its global interests started, started to spread. I think the tenor or overall that policy was driven by the idea that if we basically give China a seat at the table and, and treat them as a, as a responsible major power, that the system would kind of rise to the occasion, if you will. And I think that really by the time Xi Jinping came to power, that, that had started to shift. It started to shift really around the financial crisis, in part because the policymakers in Beijing started to believe that that their model had made China rich enough and powerful enough that they could remove the, the old framework they worked under from Deng Xiaoping that was generally noted, known as, you know, hide your capabilities and, and bide your time and, and, and have a, a more forceful, uh, more energetic policy in the world, but also to, to kind of voice their views, which often, you know, didn't align with, with U.S. views. And then we've now had a decade under Xi Jinping. You know, he came to power at the end of 2012. In many ways, that's been a major turning point in, in the governance of China at home, but also China's behavior on the international stage. And over the course of his time in power, we've had a number of occasions where we kind of tried out that model of, can we entice China to be a responsible stakeholder responsible major power. And let's kind of test the proposition almost scientifically. And as more and more of those tests, China has failed in the sense that, that they, they didn't act in a responsible way, that's really shifted. That's been a major force in shifting the, the China policy discussion, even for people who were kind of raised in the world of engagement and, and tr- the idea that the way to get China to go in a more positive direction was you know, to, to listen to them more intently, to kind of make concessions so that you weren't enabling the hardliners in Beijing by putting too much pressure on China. I think that view, there's still some out there, but by and large, it's kind of run out of steam as the US, but also a growing number of uh, allies and partners around the world have been burned essentially on various policy issues and have thought more about, okay, what's kind of... It, I think we the the idea of being maybe the policy should be more about pressure and, and competition first and foremost, and then look for opportunities to cooperate, but not assume that China's intention is just would move towards uh, liberal norms if only we spoke more nicely to them. Engagement is not that simple, but if you're to really distill it down in, into its essence, it's something along those lines. And but at the same time, I think the China field has really opened up uh, because as China has become a global power, there there's a recognition that we need to know things about China, but China is increasingly interfacing with every other region and every other functional area in the world, whether it's tech, 
economics, trade, military affairs, global governance, all those kinds of things. So there's, I think, a growing community uh, of folks who are doing what I would call China and, uh, you know, China and the United States, China and tech. And I think in doing so, we've brought in actually a more diverse set of voices who are thinking about this, not just from a, a regionalist or cultural affinity point of view, but from a technical and functional point of view. And, and I think that's also had a role in, in shifting the discussion. Was the strategy of attempting to bring China into the fold, give them a seat at the table, allow them the opportunity to behave as a responsible you know, partner, etc., was that strategy naive from the start or was the ultimate reaction and response of China ultimately unforeseeable and that was a worthy path to go down even though, you know, it didn't quite take us where we thought? So I think this debate this debate has reached near theological status among China watchers and China policy hands in the sense that it's one of the most heated and disputed questions in the field. My personal view on it was that it largely made sense in the context of the Cold War to partner with China to counterbalance the Soviet Union, that there was a kind of basic power logic, power politics logic to doing that. After the, the Cold War ended and we were thinking about how to integrate China into the, to the global economy and, and whether and how to do so, I think in general, it was a good idea to test the proposition about whether you know, China could move towards a more liberal system. You know, there were points along the way, certainly like the Tiananmen Square massacre in, in 1989 and, and other points along the way where it was clear that the system was still quite repressive. But there were other places where you know, there, there was something of a political space for, for discussion starting on economic issues, but in a way starting to see that bleed over into politics. I think the question is, did we, once the, the trajectory started to turn in a really negative direction, did the US and our allies and partners kind of change course quickly enough? I think that is, that's probably the, the question, or that's probably where I would say we maybe should have been able to put the pieces together and started to adjust our policies a little earlier. But changing the framework of uh, engagement with the, the world's largest or least most populous country in one that, that had its foundations in a very successful policy is always going to be a difficult task. And, and having that kind of paradigmatic policy change always takes time to do. I am of the view that, that we were distracted in many ways by the, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, to a degree that you know, a lot of our policy community w was focused on, on those issues and, and maybe not as well versed in what was going on uh, with China. So that was, that was definitely an issue. But overall, I don't, think it was, I don't think it was as naive as some would make it out to be. But I think we, we are at a place where there's plenty of evidence and there has been for, for a number of years that at least the China under Xi Jinping, probably the China at least since 2008, has been moving on a more difficult and um, confrontational trajectory, and we needed our policy to respond to that. So then would you say that Deng Xiaoping's famous hide your strength, bide your time strategy actually proved 
very effective for China in terms of achieving their goals. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, the, the implication of the strategy was always hide and bide until you're ready to kind of spring forth. And so I think in many ways, it was a very successful policy in that it allowed China to move from the isolation of the Mao era and really pariah status that, that China had achieved in the, in the Mao era into a rich, uh, globally integrated economy. And then to do so, and then once it was able to do that, uh, after a couple uh, decades of focusing on funding economic growth, it began a very uh, intensive, large-scale military modernization and build-up campaign, which has you know, resulted in, in where China is now. So I think overall, Deng Xiaoping's hide-and-bide strategy was pretty effective from the point of view of, of the CCP. I think historically, we, we were trying to kind of lock in the type of international engagement China had under the hide and bide strategy and and in hopes that it wouldn't then move to that to that next stage that's that's more assertive more confrontational. So let's zoom in a little bit on the CCP. They just finished their big 20th Congress. What were your big takeaways from the Congress and what if anything surprised you? This is a meeting that happens once every five year in the Chinese Communist Party's political calendar, it brings together uh, about 2,300 delegates out of China's 96 million members of the Chinese Communist Party to have a, a big piece of, of political theater where they do two things, kind of lay out their priorities in a major speech and then choose new leadership. Probably the most important takeaway from the Congress was the fact that Xi Jinping is now embarking on, on a third five-year term as general secretary, so the head of the Chinese Communist Party. So, you know, she has three important titles as China's paramount leader, general secretary of the Communist Party, head of the Central Military Commission, so being in charge of the military, and then the third is being China's president, which is our head of state, which is the, the, the kind of least important of the three. So this matters because the, the two leaders preceding Xi Jinping had essentially served two, two five-year terms and then, without being forced, had allowed the next leader to, to come on board and, and to take over leadership of China. There are some caveats to that, but by and large, it led most people to assess that China had become more institutionalized and that there were norms in China's governance system that created a certain sort of predictability and stability in what one scholar called authoritarian resilience. Because often for authoritarian regimes, the hardest thing, the part where the wheels come off the wagon is when they try to change leaders. And so what's happening in China now under Xi Jinping is he, he set up for this third term, but, but really set up to rule indefinitely. And so that's, that's itself is a major takeaway. Now, in addition, under Xi Jinping, there are essentially concentric circles moving outward of leadership in China. The next circle is called the Politburo Standing Committee. And so this is a group made up of seven people in total, including Xi Jinping, who are kind of the vice presidents or kind of the, the board of governing China, if you will. And in the past, there'd been kind of mix of people from different, they're called factions or kind of different interest groups in the party. And the makeup of the Politburo Standing Committee was seen as kind of a proxy of the balance of power among these different factions in the party. So what we saw during this round in the last couple of weeks was that Xi Jinping was able to 
promote four people out of the, to- the total of seven into the Politburo Standing Committee, and in doing so, basically kick out and or not promote anyone from the other political factions. He basically put a bunch of his cronies and political loyalists into these jobs. And he did this to a, gr- a degree that even China watchers like myself, who, who thought that Xi Jinping had a very firm hold on power, were even in a, a state of shock seeing at how much he was able to kind of run the table here in terms of picking the senior leadership. And so that's a really important trend because it means that instead of behind the scenes jockeying that we've seen uh, between factions and sort of power sharing in China that we've seen over the last couple of decades, it really indicates that, that Xi Jinping is in, in control of the system and every kind of lever of power pretty directly now in a way where those other factions are, are not really in a position to influence policy in an important way. And what that means is there are fewer checks on Xi Jinping's power, but there's also less of kind of a a policy debate behind closed doors among China's top leaders about what the right direction for China's policy should be. And so, you know, Xi Jinping's policies as a result are are likely to carry on and, and if nothing, maybe intensify from there. So that's kind of the leadership picture. In addition, there's some kind of arcane stuff about changes to the party's constitution. And the the gist of it is, is that Xi Jinping was able to essentially write himself into the party's constitution as a figure that you can't really question, either he himself as the man or his thought or his branded ideology as part of uh, CCP ideology, which in many ways is, is important, more important than the law in China. And then finally, she gave a a major speech. Uh, It's technically called the work report, but it goes on for a couple hours in which he laid out his priorities on a number of different issues. And we can go through those in in more detail if if that would be useful. But those were the the big policy and personnel movements at the party Congress. So it sounds like a lot of China watchers were surprised by some of these developments. Do we have any sense of what reaction looked like? within China? I mean, certainly, I assume if you're not a loyalist, you're probably not advertising your views. But but is there is there any sort of barometer for what the public opinion is, what the opinion has been of, of officials who are outside of the inner circle? You know, of course, you know, China as an authoritarian country means there's a lot of opacity in the system, but but not in a also the lack of an ability to go do real open polling and, 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 and look at public opinion in a really systematic and rigorous way as a as political scientist. So I think there, as a result of that, we rely on kind of uh, anecdotal and indirect metrics to try to gauge this. Before the party congress started, there was uh, a rare and major show of, of protest where someone unfurled a banner over a major highway in Beijing with slogans that that criticized Xi Jinping, criticized the zero COVID policy, and called for basically more democratic styles of government's government. And that's just one person who's, you know, taken a very brave stance uh, against a, a large party machine. But I think that was sort of taken in, as an indication in some ways that there's certainly a cohort in China that that is being re- repressed politically by Xi Jinping and doesn't like the the direction he's taken the country. And of course, this is in addition to 
repression of the Uyghurs, people in Hong Kong, and so on, where the repression is at a very, very high level up to and including genocidal acts in, in Xinjiang. Um, as it relates to other people in the party, I think there our sense, the sense I we get talking to Chinese people, but but also the system remains very opaque, but it's very clear that people who were once powerful because of their factional alignments have been kicked out of power or put in prison or had their assets taken from them. So certainly there are a lot of people who Xi Jinping uh, not just recently, but over the 10 years of him being in power, uh, where he's he's used anti-corruption mechanisms to go after corrupt officials, but also his political enemies in a way that helped him kind of clear the field well in advance of this party congress, so that when the time came, he was able to really put his top people in place. And if he hadn't been setting the table for that five or 10 years before that, a um, a win of this magnitude in terms of controlling the leadership wouldn't wouldn't have been possible. Hu Jintao was unceremoniously pulled out of the room, and this the picture blew up on Twitter and across media. Obviously, it didn't blow up in China. What do you make of that? Well, I think there's a couple theories on it. One theory is that, or at least the official theory is that, the official explanation is that Hu Jintao who is older, is that he's unwell, he may have some dementia, and so that he was having some sort of health or memory episode up on the dais sitting right next to Xi Jinping. The other theory is that he had in front of him a, a folder that, that had the names of the top leadership that were yet to be announced, but, but were in the folder, and that he was sort of looking at them uh, before he was supposed to, and that when he saw that Basically, all of his acolytes in his faction is generally referred to as the Communist Youth League, which is a, a youth organization that's trained a lot of future leaders in the Communist Party. The Purge-style explanation for this event is that he looked at the list, and it either wasn't the people he'd been told were going to be on there, or he simply had no idea who was going to be on there, and he saw it, and you know it was very bad for his faction because uh, and you saw other officials trying to get him to not look at the list. The explanation for the ultimate explanation for this does matter, but it, but the the incident is really important and symbolic because regardless of what happened on the dais, the fact is when you look at the leadership laydown that's come out of this Congress, his political Hu Jintao's kind of political thought his immediate protégés and their kind of acolytes were really pushed to, out of the system. So already the, the incoming or incumbent premier, Li Keqiang, has you know, been pushed into retirement, and he had arguably already not had a lot of power to begin with or not, not had the kind of power that former number twos in the party premiers had been able to exercise, especially over the economy in the last few years. Also, uh, another, another who who was a younger official, was actually moved from the Politburo, so that, that top 25 level of governance in China, down to what's called the Central Committee, which is the next 205 level. So he was essentially demoted, and they, just to send an additional message, they moved, made the Politburo from 25 people to 24. So the message is, we had a seat for you, but we wanted to demote you anyway, so it wasn't, you know, it was pretty clear that we didn't want you on this particular governing body. 
So you can get really deep in the weeds on some of these personnel issues. But in general, in addition to Hu Jintao being physically moved off the stage, he's being politically moved off the stage in China's governance structure and, and in the CCP. And that's what really made this incident important. What does an acolyte of Xi Jinping do in 10 years when they're in charge? Like, is there a certain oeuvre of what they're trying to accomplish that his faction will carry forward that other factions wouldn't? We got some hints of this in that long speech, the work report that that comes from Xi Jinping and is really kind of one of the most authoritative documents we have for understanding how the CCP sees the past, its own achievements, especially over the last 10 years, but also its goals going forward. And because of the strength of, of Xi Jinping's political power, I think the work, the work report can be used as something of a proxy for trying to understand, as you said, that what's the agenda basically for, for Xi Jinping in, in the future. I think it's a recognition, certainly a, a strengthening of the party and the party's role uh, in, in Chinese life and at the center of kind of China's governance. Xi Jinping basically argued when he came into power that the party had become too corrupt and that it had sort of given up on official uh, ideology and was basically subject to disillusion, maybe like the Soviet Union did. And, and if that happened, uh, there would be major negative effects for China, again, in, in Xi Jinping's view. I think in addition, what we saw is his assessment about the relationship with the United States and that he, he believes that, you know, that there are, quote unquote, dangerous storms coming and that because of drastic changes in the international landscape, that major powers led by the United States, but also others are trying to kind of contain or, or, or pressure China in a, in a certain direction. Another piece that we saw in a big way in the work report was that an emphasis on, on technological self-reliance and greater strength in science and technology. This is kind of the flip side to the pressure the United States has been putting on China on technology issues, including the recent export control on, on high-end computer chips. But for Xi Jinping, being at the technological forefront is really important for solving economic and demographic and military problems for China. But it also kind of is a way of showing the superiority of the CCP system. And even in some ways, he would argue Chinese culture. And then I would say the the other piece that, that would characterize a Xi Jinping outlook would be kind of putting security, both political security and domestic regime security, but also international security on par with economic development and building a large and sophisticated military that's able to enforce China's territorial claims over Taiwan, over the East and South China Sea and parts of, the, uh, of territory along the border with India to, to unify territory that China claims and, and thereby achieve what he calls the great rejuvenation of the, of the Chinese nation. So I think those are a few of the pieces that are part of the Xi Jinping agenda. And then I, I'm, I don't focus as much on cultural issues, but there, it is notable in the sense that Xi Jinping is, is somewhat like Vladimir Putin in, in the sense that he's advocated for a more traditional family and societal structure. So trying to get kids to play fewer video games and you know, play outside instead and to have, you know, traditional marriage and those kinds of things, more children to help 
solve China's demographic policy. And it was notable, too, that in that uh, the Politburo, the group of top 25 leaders, there, there was no women in the group for the first time in a quarter century. So there's definitely kind of a gender and authoritarianism trend here that that's, that's worthy of further inquiry and that others have done much better than me, Lita Hong Fisher, among others. But so I think that that's really um, at the core of it. You know, Xi Jinping is what's known as a princeling. His father was among the original revolutionaries that that fought with Mao and and founded the People's Republic of China. So, you know, he's very much steeped in the historiography of the party. And even though his father and the, uh, was purged from the party by Mao Zedong and Xi Jinping was sent to the countryside to, to do hard labor, his answer coming back was to be, as one person put it, redder than red, right? To be more communist than anyone else could be and more CCP than anyone else could be. And I think that flavors kind of the political agenda he has for the country at large. The zero COVID policy is here to stay. And I'd love to hear what you believe the implications of that are and whether every time we see zero COVID, we should just replace in our heads with even more enhanced surveillance and control. Like, is that what this means politically? Is that what it means on the ground? Does this, does this actually have anything to do with public health? What's been interesting about the political effects of the pandemic has been the stages, especially the geopolitical effects, um, have been the, the different stages of the pandemic. And, and certainly, China was very worried about, in the initial period, about the outbreak of the pandemic being kind of China's Chernobyl, right? The, the big disaster that played a role in bringing down the Soviet Union. And the second stage was China getting the virus under control in a way that, that countries in other parts of the world, but especially the United States, didn't seem able to do. And the argument for that, which is that zero COVID policy, is essentially the government can enforce things at a large scale that might have minor inconveniences for individual people, but create a systemic effect that's much healthier and saves lives. That's their argument. But and that worked to, to a certain extent for a while, but it also, you know, cut China off from the world, although that that's not they weren't the only country where that was true. Where zero COVID really started to, to come apart is when the Omicron variant started and um and it really made the cost, really ramped up the cost of carrying out and sustaining zero COVID because of the high level of transmissibility in the virus. So suddenly that, again, that cost of, of uh, maintaining zero COVID became uh, a lot more expensive. But the problem was, is in that intervening time when the West had come up with mRNA vaccines like Mo the Moderna one and the Pfizer one. China wanted to, to have its own homegrown vaccine, but its original ones were not as, uh, didn't work as well as the mRNA vaccines. And then they've been slow to come up with them, their, their own mRNA vaccine. So they did eventually, they do have one now, but it's only approved for whatever reason in Indonesia. It's not actually in China yet, but Chinese company has come up with an mRNA vaccine. But broadly, uh, a lot of most of the Chinese public is not vaccinated. Sorry, there's low levels at, at, for mRNA, but especially in total unvaccination in large parts of the older senior cohort. And so earlier this year, when we saw China loosen a little bit zero COVID in Hong Kong, 
They had a moment where hospitals were essentially overrun, a very high rate of death among, among seniors in Hong Kong. And so Chinese leaders are looking at almost 1.4 billion people and, and extrapolating out, okay, if we let this population be exposed to Omicron, we could potentially have very, very high death rates uh, because they're not, you know, a lot of these populations are unvaccinated. And so that's kind of what they're, they're juggling right now. But going back to that earlier accomplishment, or what they argue was an accomplishment in that second stage where they got COVID under control, that's the place where Xi Jinping basically said COVID zero is, is an accomplishment under, under my reign, um, but also it's an accomplishment of, of China. And so there's kind of a theological attachment to it, especially under Xi Jinping's uh, continued rule, where the, the political, what it takes politically to move away from it, uh, because it's so associated with Xi Jinping, it, it's very difficult. So yeah, so it continues to weigh down the economy. But then finally, as you said, the surveillance apparatus that was set up to, to control COVID and to track people is also in many ways an authoritarian's dream, right, of being able to, to track and monitor people in real time and to do it in, in a very detailed and, and dynamic way. And there's some debate about this, but I think in general, the, even the Chinese population that is used to living in an authoritarian country maybe would not have accepted this degree of intrusion into their, into their private lives without the pandemic. So I think the argument is still, you know, once you create the system, do you keep it in place for political control and for nudging people or pushing people into the to to have the types of behaviors you you want them to have. And so that's kind of the the question going forward, but in the short term, I think the leadership believes they can't get out of zero covid because they re- they risk huge levels of of outbreak and death and so until they're able to get the mRNA vaccine and to really vaccinate a larger part of the population, it's hard to see how they change the policy. Switching gears A lot of China watchers have made their own predictions about both the likelihood and the potential timing of a kinetic conflict with Taiwan. Would love to hear your take. This has been driven in part by U.S. officials who, so the former uh, commander of U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, which which is all of Asia, was warning about China trying to use military force to uh, take over Taiwan in an earlier stage, or you know, at an earlier period than than people had been expected. So he talked about potentially this happening by by 2027. There's no official Chinese goal on this, although Xi Jinping has made uh, unifying with Taiwan, including by force if if necessary, uh, priority for him reaching his goal of the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation which is officially pegged to the year 2049 which is the 100 would be the 100th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. So a lot of focus is put on anniversaries and in the work report that big speech he did talk about some goals for getting the People's Liberation Army China's military to a standard where you know they would be in a better position to try to invade Taiwan and to do so successfully. In some of those goals by 2027, uh, but there's also 2035 and 2049 goals for, for the military. And then you can kind of parse the degree to which they're just goals. Are they really actually meeting those metrics or not? I think it, this all boils down to 
China can't doesn't really yet have the capability to to invade Taiwan or to do so successfully, but they are modernizing their military and making it better, more effective very quickly. But that's just one factor in the decision to invade Taiwan. If China uh, was to make that decision, especially Xi Jinping was to make that decision, it would be based on a number of factors coming together all at once. So it's not just about it's not that he's he has a, a calendar somewhere with a red X on it that says like invade Taiwan Day. It's more about his assessment of where the PLA's capabilities are in comparison to Taiwan's military, in comparison to the U.S. military. What's going on politically uh, in China, in Taiwan, in the United States? And the first and primary goal of China's policy towards Taiwan is to deter Taiwan from declaring independence from China. That that an, an announcement like that would probably precipitate China trying to stop that by using military force. And right now, the government in Taiwan is studiously is not going to de- declare independence. They want to maintain the status quo. But that could change in the future with with different leadership in Taiwan, the United States, and in China. In addition. Formally speaking, uh, China's model for incorporating Taiwan into China is the same model that they offered to Hong Kong. It's this model called one country, two systems. And when it was invented in the 1990s for Hong Kong, the idea was, we're going to become a unified country, but you get to kind of run yourself politically. What we saw with the crackdown on protesters in Hong Kong and the imposition of a very hardline national security law is that it's no longer for China and Hong Kong, one country, two systems, but they're now basically a single system ruled from Beijing in the types of rule of law and political pluralism and freedom of speech that had been existent in Hong Kong before the protests totally went away. So when people in Taiwan look at the type of offer that Beijing is making politically for them to connect and integrate into with mainland China, uh, it doesn't look very appealing because it doesn't look like they would actually have two systems. It looks like they would live under the same system that people in mainland China live under, and that especially Taiwan's rich civil society, its democratic government, people who'd been in its military would all you know, face pretty dire consequences. And so that's kind of some of the atmosphere around how China will make decisions about whether to try to take Taiwan by force. But it's not, it's not associated with any particular timeline. And I think even if it was, that, that timeline could, could shift based on several factors. And so that's, a, that's a, a, not a very clean answer, but I think it, I think it represents the, the reality uh, across the Taiwan Strait. So before we go, if you were talking to your parents, if you were talking to an average American, what's something important that they should be focused on in China at this moment that will impact them? What we've seen under Xi Jinping is uh, increased assertiveness and even aggression abroad and increased repression at home. The repression in China matters a lot. It implicates American values, democratic values. But I think China's assertiveness and even aggression abroad is probably the thing that, that should matter most in terms of material interests to Americans. And that's because in some ways, the system that that we have right now in in Northeast Asia that was set up after the Second World War is coming under uh, incredible levels of stress. 
because of China's rise. And a multi-decade period of peace is really kind of a historical outlier in, in that region of the world, as it was to, to a large extent in, in Europe as well. But at the same time, that in Northeast Asia and China and Taiwan and, and elsewhere in the region, it's really the heart of the global economy, especially the technological economy related to semiconductors, but also a whole range of technology product value chains. So the potential for a, a contingency or a conflict in that region of the world would have major implications for, for governance and for security there and, and could become a very big conflict. But at a minimum, it would have major reverberations throughout the global economy because it's, it, it's really thinking about an outbreak of conflict, again, right at the heart of global supply chains. And so I think that's really what makes this matter in a, in a kind of kitchen table sense for average Americans is sustaining peace and stability in, in this region of the world is incredibly important going forward because it's kind of underwritten the, the globalized world economy as we know it. So with that, let's turn to our final segment where we each talk about something we're following in the news, either culturally or politically. Jacob, I hear you might have some recommendations for us. Sure. So, well, as, as I was telling uh, Grant and Zoe before the podcast, I, I have an 11 and a half month old, so I'm, I'm not consuming much pop culture these days outside of baby stuff. But before I had kids, uh, or kid, then I, I didn't really realize how much how many options there were of baby stuff and how much kind of like baby tech is out there. So apparently there's a, there's a thing that helps rock your baby to sleep and the original, like a motorized bassinet basically. And the original one was created by this guy who was a sleep doctor. And it's about, I think you could buy a car for the amount of money that it costs to buy one of these. But there's also a lesser version, the sort of Honda Civic version uh, that we got from this company called Mamaroo. But it means when you need to rock your baby to sleep and it's either, you know, you can either stand up and do it yourself or you can put them safely in this bassinet that does it for you so you can go back to sleep. That is worth, I think every parent could agree, a lot of, a lot of money. Um, so that's, that's my endorsement as, is uh, check out the Mamaroo bassinet if you're, um, if you're feeling tired and you, and you have a newborn. Zoe, what are you following this week? I have been following the series of climate protests that have been staged at various museums in which mashed potatoes were thrown at a Monet painting and tomato soup was thrown at a Van Gogh. Fortunately, the works were not damaged, but I think it's been sort of interesting on a few different levels because young people certainly have been at the tip of the spear when it comes to demanding action on climate change and the environment. And this is in many ways, a continuation of that trend. And in general, I think I support the chutzpah of like of young people on this issue. And sure enough, one of the groups participating in these protests is actually calling themselves the last generation because they are the last generation that can help to mitigate some of the long-term consequences of climate change. But I think this series of incidences has caused a lot of people to ask if maybe they've gone too far and whether their actions will ultimately have the unintended consequence of repelling a big portion of the folks that perhaps they hope to attract to the cause um, and whether ultimately it will end up being counterproductive. So interesting to watch. 
that being said, you know, here we are talking about it. And I think the whole point was to was to attract attention, good or bad. So maybe they've accomplished their goal. But that's what I'm following. This week, I wanted to highlight the fact that before the next episode of Next in Foreign Policy comes out, the college basketball season will be back. I'll be happily tuning in to as many George Mason basketball games as possible, but I have to say the number of services I have to sign up to to watch all of them is insane. I need basic cable. I need ESPN+. I need regional broadcasting packages and much more. I get that conferences and schools are trying to make as much money as possible, but still, it seems like there has to be a better system out there. With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR Network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, and follow Jacob at Jacob Stokes. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's podcast is brought to you by Stop Big Soup. Are you tired of guerrilla marketing campaigns for soup ruining museums? Join our movement by throwing fine art on oil derricks. And while you're busy super gluing yourself to the floor, join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy. <laughs>